Thank you very much. Just two things, three to begin with. First, I'm really, it's not a joke, physically ashamed for what's happening to me, this paresis of the right side of my face. I mean, here I'm almost a neo-Nazi, you know, like, we should have beautiful bodies. If we don't have them, then this mirrors our spiritual filth and decadence, whatever. I'm really embarrassed for it, so... Uh, the, I'm doing all the in, indescribably disgusting things, massages, laser, and so on. But the only way I can react to it is to give you a theory. I think that this so-called paresis mirrors nicely our political predicament. Because it may appear that the muscles here are immobilized. But as... Doctors tell you there is nothing wrong with the muscles. It's the nerves. But there is another paradox. You cannot contact or influence directly the nerves. You have to go through massaging the muscles to revitalize the nerves. Isn't this our political predicament? Muscles of the leftist revolt are immobilized, but the problem are the nerves the theory, the new vision, and so on. But, as every good leftist knows, the, the further is exactly like with my stupid face, that, uh, that the only way to revitalize the nerves, to provide a new vision, is nonetheless not by directly thinking, but by moving the muscles, and then hoping, that is to say, crowd movements, protests, and so on, and hope that our nerves, we hear academia theory, will react to me. So this is a good critique of false liberal left intellectuals who criticize the stupid crowds, you know, the muscles like, oh, you take Trump seriously, and so on, and so on. No, they, the nerves, are really guilty. And the way it goes on now, I will tell you, Trump will even be re-elected. You know that, first, his approval ratings are already over 50%, He's just doing well. I will tell you, at the end, he will even be the big peacemaker concluding some obscene peace with, with his twin double, the North Korean guy. No? So that, the, the second thing, uh, I really feel bad about this. Uh, already uh, changing the topic, condensing it, because already in my, already, as you know, if some of you were at my previous seminars, I cheat a lot, like, it's a lucky, like in, like in casinos, those, what's the big hit, that you get three numbers, seven or whatever, in one row, that you get me really talking about what I announce in the titles. <laughs> so I really feel bad, and I propose to do the usual thing, that I will send to, where is she hiding, to Magda? Traitor, where did she go? Outside yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, 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 I will simply send her at least some texts, which are fresh texts, unpublished, part of my forthcoming book, so that at least you will be able to get basically, nonetheless, the stuff. So that if you still have time to read, uh, now it's extremely annoying for me, I almost cannot read, because one of the effects is also that my eye is not getting enough water, so I have to 
put artificial tears on it all the time, and I cannot read consistently for more than 10 minutes. Can you imagine what hell, much more than this sea place, sorry for vulgar implications, uh, uh, how frustrating this is for me, like, uh, that I cannot even read. I mean, then, what should I do there, then? Okay, uh, so it will be an easy talk uh, combined with some, ah, ah, now, you heard me. Oh. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, with some movie clips and so on, about some actual talk, like the starting point will be Ernst Lubitsch, a Hollywood director which I think deserves to be brought back to life, and I will connect all these with topics of comedy, love, sexuality, and of course, violence, horror. Uh, after the extent of the Nazi atrocities became known, to the public, Lubitsch's uh, uh, dark anti-Nazi comedy, To Be or Not To Be, as well as Charlie Chaplin's The Great Dictator, were both criticized for downplaying the horrors of Nazism by way of making a comedy out of them. And Chaplin, Charlie Chaplin himself, said, I think wrongly, that if, if a couple of letters after, in early 40s, that if he just were to know the horrors that happened in Auschwitz and so on, he would never have shot his film. It makes too la it's too, uh, la too, too it makes it too easy, too light, and so on and so on. However, I think that the situation is much more complex and ambiguous. Isn't it that in a tragedy? I'm repeating an old point of mine. In a tragedy, vic victims retain a minimum of dignity, which is why when horror crosses a certain line to portray it in a tragedy or as a tragedy is a blasphemy. One downplays its, uh, its, its to the true extent of horror. Uh, in Auschwitz or in Gulag camp and so on, victims were to such an extent dehumanized, deprived of their human dignity, that they can no longer be perceived as tragic heroes. There is something false to imagine this, let's say Auschwitz, a Nazi henchman approaching a Jew who then says, you can kill me, but you will never take away my freedom. And blah, blah. It's false. You were too broken down them there to do things like this. So again, my old point, no wonder that then some of the best films about concentration camps are comedies. And should we then be really surprised that the same goes for today's horrors? For example, I learned, it's a disgusting example, but that's my point, that when Sarajevo was under siege in early 90s, one of, and you know, because of the Serb bombardment, they often ran out of gas. And the vulgar, brutal joke was, what's the difference between Auschwitz and Sarajevo? In Auschwitz, at least, they never ran out of gas, and so on. I mean, it's vulgarity, but what I want to say is that, it's not a simple disrespect. It's a desperate vulgarity, 
and escape into comedy, the meaning of which is it's still too fresh, too traumatic to deal with it directly in all its horror. All we can do it is some kind of a desperate escape into humor, which really means we respect it, the horror of what's going on. We respect it too much to stage, stage it as a pathetic tragedy, you know, all that humanitarian bullshit, like it was popular to say, I'm especially suspicious about this formula. In some sense, we all live in Sarajevo, you know, or this false, pathetic identification with victims, which of course means for us living comfortably in the West that Precisely, we all live in Sarajevo, yes, then I return to my flat and order some food delivery and so on. Is this secret pleasure? I can say that, but I know very well that I don't live there. So, uh, 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 along similar lines uh, is a story, maybe you know it, maybe I'm repeating myself, uh, uh, told to me, because I think that if you look at jokes from... Lubitsch's masterpiece, to be or not to be, they are, when he is at his most brutal, very similar to this, uh, to this Sarajevo story. And that's Lubitsch's greatness. He does not portray the Nazis as the usual idiots there, you know, these dumb idiots, uh, ridiculously disciplined and so on. It's a nice detail that in to be or not to be, these best one-liners are provided by concentration camp Erhard, uh, an SS officer. And there are two famous one-liners. One is uh, when this Erhard is asked about concentration camps, you know, he replies, yes, we, the Germans, are doing the concentrating and the Poles are doing the camping, you know, and so on, lines like this. And I think it's... Uh, 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 a very similar reversal, very brutal one, happened, it was told to me by uh, Wolf Biermann, the ex-dissident uh, uh, who is now more almost a right-winger uh, in Germany. Wonderful anecdote, I'm sorry if you know it, immediately after the breakdown of communism, he, Biermann, went to some green meeting in ex-East Germany and one group present there were some right-wing neo-Nazi ecologists. And he attacked them uh, for, but my God, you praise Hitler, you are Nazis. And he got, I'm sorry to know it, the answer of a lifetime. I love it. They answered him, no, it's not true, we are critical of Hitler. But now listen to their, they said, we, uh, they were green, ecology. They said, we are horrified at Hitler. We agree one should be balanced. Hitler did some good things, like getting rid of the Jews, Germany, and so on. But he also did so many horrible things, like building all the highways, electrification, and so on. So now we are... This is the pure spirit of, uh, of, of Lubitsch, I claim. This brutal humor. And I think... Uh, uh, now comes my first clip, theoretically important. Uh, uh, this 
Lubitsch approach has a deep, I'm not afraid of the word, ontological foundations. foundation. There is a, I'm sorry, it's not very funny, but the point will be clear. In one scene, in To Be or Not To Be, uh, you see the hero of the film, this ridiculous Polish actor, Josef Tura, impersonating as part of a resistance operation the concentration camp Erhard, the Nazi guy. And he is questioned by a Nazi collaborator, and evading the question, he, you will see it immediately, Tura, again, masked as concentration camp Erhard, does in an absolutely exaggerated way this gesture of <coughs> ha ha, they call me concentration camp Erhard, and so on. And you think, okay, this idiot cannot even play properly, he's exaggerating it. But then a couple of minutes later, you will see both clips. The roles are changed, and Josef Tura is dressed as a, uh, another Nazi collaborator questioning, confronting the real concentration camp Erhard. And in a wonderful, subtle joke, the real concentration camp Erhard does exactly the same as his imitator even more. He said, haha, they call me concentration camp Erhard, and so on and so on. There is a wonderful lesson in this. It is that... Uh, it's not only that Tura plays Erhard. Erhard, in some sense, also plays himself. So let me show the first two very short clips. And if you are religious, let's praise. Let's so pray. long, I get suspicious of everyone. And so do I. <laughs> so they, they call me concentration camp Erhard. <laughs> Coming back to Mrs. Tura. Oh, let's forget about her. There's nothing mysterious about her. She's just a cheap little... So long, I get suspicious of everyone. And so do I. Okay? No problem. Wait a minute. Uh, I pressed too much and got rid of all of it. I will do it immediately. Uh, uh, documents, pictures, uh, USB. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I'm back here. Yes, everything okay. Uh, uh, we, we, I'm here. No, don't worry. Now we get Tura. Uh, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I'm really sorry. I know what I did wrong. I have to go here. Yeah, yeah. Life is hell, as you can see. Yeah. Uh, so here is just a clumsy actor making fun of Erhard. Now we have the real Erhard. Uh, Colonel, you're quite famous in London. You know what they call you? Concentration camp Erhard. Oh, they do, do they? <laughs> so they call me concentration camp Erhard. <laughs> I, uh, I thought you would react just that way. <laughs> well, Professor, let's have your information. Uh, uh, I think I could stand a glass of brandy after all. Certainly. <laughs> brandy. <laughs> that makes me think of a very funny story, which... Uh, Colonel... Oh my God, it doesn't matter. Okay, sorry. Uh, uh, so again, uh, this is what I like about Lubitsch and where he is extra, uh, important today is that, okay, what you saw here, you can still read it in some postmodern way. Everything is an irony. There is no substance. We just play ourselves and so on and so on. But 
saw the movie, you can easily, even legally, download it. You don't need even to go to Pirate Bay. And uh, you can see that uh, the implication of Lubitsch that I appreciate so much is that uh, his lesson is not a cynical one. There is no love, there is no authentic relationship, we are just playing games. It's a much more subtle one. I think that the movie, to be or not to be, again, the central figures are this, Josef Tura, an actor, uh, self-in-love, arrogant, but, and his wife, Maria Tura, and with Lubitsch, names are important, Joseph and Mary, Josef Tura, Maria Tura, uh, although she is cheating on him, he is exploiting her, but I claim the message is through all these ridiculous cheatings, misunderstandings, they are the ultimate happy couple. They invented their formula. And I think that's the proper lesson of psychoanalysis. Don't look for happy marriage. Look for a formula into which you include all these stupidities of each side and so on, and they can work in an extremely, in a wonderful way. Like, I remember when I was very young, uh, young I saw a caricature in a Slovene a comical weekly, where it, you see one old guy running with an axe after an old lady, and uh, uh, their neighbor observing them said to a friend, you see, I know for 60 years that this marriage will not end well, you know, like that. <laughs> but that's the formula. The formula can even be, I'm running with an axe after you, cheating, whatever. That's what Lacan means, with, there is no sexual relationship. It does not mean this tragic sense, you know, it's always a romantic catastrophe and so on. The art of happy love life, I claim, is to turn the deadlock into a wonderful comedy. It can be done. That's the point of, I will not bore you with it, the best Jewish humor about wives and so on. It's, uh, uh, don't do it uh, in the wrong way. But again, uh, does this also not point to the limits of the approach of Lubitsch, at least for us today? We more and more experience what was for Lubitsch still a joke, as something that is now simply enacted in real political ideological uh, life. Recall Erhard's legendary quip that I already mentioned it. We do the concentrating, Poles do the camping. Or there is another legendary quip. Josef Tura is uh, in the movie a great Shakespeare author who, of course, plays Hamlet in a slightly ridiculous way, and he, masked as a Nazi, asked the real concentration camp Erhard, did you hear about a Polish actor called Josef Tura? And you know, the answer he gets is for this joke that the movie was censored, they didn't want it. A wonderful answer Erhard gives. Yes, Josef Tura, yes, of course I know him. He is doing to Shakespeare what we Germans are now doing to Poland, no, and so on. I mean, I find this so subversive and much more deeply anti-Nazi that, you know, you don't make Nazis just those clumsy uh, idiots, whatever, shouting Heil Hitler and so on and so on. Okay, so uh, uh, we are doing the concentrating, Poles are doing the camping. Today, if you ask a Brussels bureaucrat, for example, about the politics of austerity, I think 
you can well get a similar answer. Yes, we in Brussels are doing the politics, the Greeks are doing the austerity or whatever. I mean, uh, and uh, not even mentioning to look at Donald Trump and so on. Uh, my point simply is how, and this is the sad experience of our life today, isn't Donald Trump like concentration camp Erhard? Imagine Josef Tura as, uh, uh, as Alec Baldwin impersonating Trump, and that's why I think Alec Baldwin is a failure. I mean, Trump is already his own best comical impersonation. You cannot beat him. However, uh, so again, the idea is this one, that the obscenity is getting so open today with Donald Trump that this liberal irony and so on and so on no longer works. But here I want to complicate things, to understand what is going on today. Uh, Lubitsch was well aware implicitly that all this 1960s, 68 and afterwards uh, uh, rhetoric, and rhetoric I don't mean just words, I mean rhetoric which regulates our practice of dropping the masks, you know, this actor studio logic. We should drop masks of manners, behavior, be what you really are, and so on and so on, uh, is deeply misleading. Why? Uh, again, in the 60s, I remember it from my own youth, it was fashionable to assert perversion, against hysteria. The idea was, and nobody wrote about it, this was, I think, even a hidden anti-feminist agenda, not recognized as such of the 1960s. When they dismissed hysteria as too compromising, you know, the idea was a hysterical subject just makes fun of the master, but secretly it demands a new, stronger master, while the pervert goes to the end. Or as even Freud says at some point, very unfortunately, a pervert does it in reality what a hysterical subject only dreams about. This is deeply wrong. For Freud, Lacan and all proper analysts, hysteria is truly subversive. Perversion is simply the dark other side of power. Every power edifice needs a secret pervert. To truly undermine power, you don't do it through perversion. You don't do it through, uh, you don't do it through bringing out the secret underside. Uh, and here we discover a model of this, an awareness of what Freud says somewhere, it's absolutely crucial that uh, although in perversion you bring out all the secret content, like you have, let's say, some dirty dreams, no problem, all obstacles fall away, you directly enact them. He says, Freud, that nowhere is unconscious more occluded, more impenetrable than in perversion. Which means that when you have the surface of good manners, blah, blah, and all these dirty dreams, and so on and so on, the true unconscious are not these dirty pervert dreams, and so on and so on. This gesture of liberation, bring it out, is false. Uh, uh, and this especially holds today where, I will now first show you 
and then tell you a story, another image that I already mentioned it here the last time, but I'm sorry for repeating it, it's crucial for my line of arguments. Uh, it, it fascinated me so much that I even am tempted to call my next book Variations on an Ashtray in a Skopje Hotel. Skopje is the capital of Macedonia. You must know the story if you were already here. I, my wife is a chain smoker, so we demanded smoking room, and they said, sorry, smoking is literally, we got this answer, smoking is prohibited in this hotel, but no problem, you have ashtray on the table there. Uh, no, I think, if I remember it exactly, they didn't even say but. They simply confronted prohibition and its transgression as it's prohibited and you have the ashtray there. I'm sorry if you already saw this and it will not be a surprise for you, but I like this. Uh, sorry, I'm a total idiot, so I have to go again through it. Uh, open file. I hope it will be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, a minute. Uh, okay, that image disappeared. It doesn't matter. Okay. Right. What I wanted to show, right, right. Uh, it, because it's not there, it should be the ashtray. Okay, doesn't matter. So what we were shocked about is that when we entered the room, there was really an ashtray, and as the illustration on the bottom of the ashtray, it was a sign smoking prohibited. <laughs> I think this is the best metaphor of where we are today. Isn't this the exact just, uh, reply that you get, for example, from the Americans when, uh, if we are to ask an American CIA uh, manager, do you torture? He would have said, no, torture is prohibited, and here is how you do waterboarding or whatever. You know, like, exactly the same. And my best experience, I'm sorry if you know the story of this, is this was my paradise. When I was in mid-70s serving the army, the Yugoslav army, we have morning classes, and the first class in the morning was some ideological education, international law, socialism, doesn't matter. The topic on a certain day was uh, what, uh, what are the international rules of shooting, you know with a simple gun. And uh, we went through the Geneva Convention where it says that, I wonder if you know this, that still under international law, when you have a parachuter, you are not allowed to shoot at him while he is still in the air. That's international law, only when he touches the ground. Yeah, we wrote this down, we learned this then. I love this. By chance, the next class, hour, was about how to shoot. And it was the same officer. And it was kind of divine coincidence. The topic was how to shoot a parachuter in the air. <laughs> With exact in instructions, you know, how you take into account the strength of the wind, the movement, so that you must uh, target it a little bit below and to what side. And one idiot, it wasn't me, self-intellectual, asked the officer, but isn't there a slight contradiction, you know, like, <laughs> between this and, and the officer gave him a correct answer. He just looked at him with extreme contempt and said, 
you appear to be an intellectual. How can you be so utterly stupid? Do you really <laughs> not get it? And so on and so on. But, uh, so, uh, uh, what, I'm, what I want to say through these examples is something very simple. It's precisely that uh, a certain type of law, rule of law, and its direct transgression, perverse other side, belong together. There is nothing liberating emancipatory in breaking the law in the sense of, I don't know, shooting a parachuter and so on. It's, it's part of the game. So uh, here Lubitsch enters, because does this mean that we are in a closed circle? Does this mean that simply, if you obey the law, you are a conformist, if you violate the law, you are even deeper caught within the secret texture of the law? So, what to do? Ah, here I think, again, Lubitsch enters. The idea, and a very nice Freudian idea, is that precisely when you drop the mask, in the sense of, you know, let's uh, uh, forget about prohibitions, let's do it directly, and so on, and so on. When you do that, what you, you do not just violate the explicit prohibition. You precisely miss the true unconscious point, which is the unconscious in this simple opposition of open, sorry, public law and its obscene, perverse transgressions, which are always remember part, the secret part, but part of the ruling ideology. The true unconscious point is a much more subtle marginal point, and although I don't like sex and the city, I wonder if I already used, I hope not this example, but I have to blame someone. My wife was watching it at my mistake. I, <laughs> in one episode, something happens which I quite liked. It's the correct Lubitsch point. The girl who is the ugliest there, officially, but my favorite one, I hate all the others, uh, Miranda. She is with a lover, they make love, and then the lover tells her uh, that he likes this pep, uh, uh, obscene talk, while they make love. And tells her, talk dirty to me, it would be much better, and so on and so on. Okay, it's difficult for her, she gets gradually used to it, and then something, and then she goes too far. But in what way? When she says all the dirty things and so on and so on, no problem. But then at some point she says, I've noticed how during making love you enjoy it when, while we are doing it, I put my finger into your asshole. He withdraws instantly. You know, this is a beautiful example of what I'm talking. You can talk about, I don't know, fucking with three men, with a dog, blah, blah, no problem. But this is the touchy point. This is the true unconscious tiny details. What Lacan means by symptom, not the symptom, but that condensed results. And in a way, all that, tell all the dirty things and so on and so on, is to avoid this type of truly traumatic truly a uh, uh, traumatic point, true, uh, 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 phantasmatic kernel. And also, in this episode of 
Sex in the City. It's also a nice house. The misunderstanding between Miranda and her lover follows Lacan's formulas of sexuation. The lover is a male, so he understands his request in max masculine terms of universality based on an exception. Talk dirty, say everything, but implicitly accept that. Like, basically, the lesson is, tell me everything, just don't mention, mention your finger in my escorts. Just, just do it, you know, but talk about everything. Well, her logic is a correct one. It's a, a feminine logic of non-all with no exception. Just tell whatever comes to your mind without worrying if you say it all and uh, whatever. It's, that's not a problem. Uh, so again, uh, uh, I... Uh, 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 and this is, I think, what Ludwig is doing. Uh, when he plays with appearances in his films, I will instantly give you a true, don't be afraid, I'm mocking, but for me it really is, a truly embarrassing, ultra-hardcore example of this. Don't be afraid, it's from Hollywood, but it's typically from, I think, 32, just before Face Coat. I'm embarrassed, I wonder if you will share this to see this movie. It's with Maurice Chevalier, uh, from 31, sorry, The Smiling Lieutenant, where you have, of course, sex, love affair, and you have, of course, playing it with doors. Everything happens behind the closed door and so on. But what I find so fascinating is that you have an obscene moment, but the obscene moment is not that you go behind the door but the obscenity which explodes in front of the door. I will show you two, three clips. Uh, uh, it's, uh, again, it's important that this movie later it vanished for four or five decades. It was just before Hayscope. Uh, it begins with a wonderful Lubitsch scene of around three minutes of introduction where, without any big words and so on, just a guy delivering a document approaching a certain door, and from this you see that somebody lives there, an Austrian officer, and that he doesn't open the door. Then a lady comes up, knocks the correct coat on the door, she is left in, and sometime later exits, obviously sexually satisfied, so you learn everything. In a very discreet way, just focusing on a door, that the guy is an Austrian officer, a bon vivant, seducing ladies, and so on and so on. Then, after all this, we move inside, but not to see sex, but, and this I really find it embarrassing, just watch it. The guy, played by young Maurice Chevalier, sings a song celebrating his sexual pursuits, but in an extremely obscene way, all is based on the parallel between sexual act and shooting as a military. Like, we do conquer, we shoot, we mean blah blah blah, and the ultimate obscenity to illustrate ejaculation, erection, 
he uses the term like shooting, ratatata, ratatata, and so on. I mean, it's, the obscenity is extreme. And then you will see the final scene of the movie, because then I will not go into the story. It gets very complex how he, a, a princess, got engaged. He doesn't want to make love to her. At the end, the princess finally seduces him. And at the end, again, this obscene song. I mean, it's worth seeing this clip. To be honest, I refer here to my Israeli friend, Yuval Kremnitzer, who did a nice analysis. So, first, the exposition. This is the beginning. Everything will happen here. It's wonderful. I'm an idiot, so what I will do is, uh, how do I get out? I will go to open file. Ah, okay, I will go here to the second one. Now comes I'm sorry, but this is for me worse than hardcore. And though we never use a gun, we are still on active service, though we are through with fighting. For when a lady takes the field, she knows the guards will always yield, and every man deserves a medal every night. 
two arms, two arms. We are used to night alarms. We're always facing powder. The girls give in. We weaken, but we win. And march home feeling prouder. We're on a parade each evening in the park. We're not afraid to skirmish in the dark. We're famous near and far. Now all the complications go on and then it's worth seeing for the extreme obscenity the final scene. This princess is now re-educated in sex and she will finally seduce him. Anna, is this you? No. This is Mandelbaum and Gruenstein. That's me. And that's me again. And so I'm not complaining. I found a new commander to obey. I must report for duty right away. She'll never pension me. Toujours l'amour in the army. Yeah. 
if you ask me, movies like this should be prohibited. No. <laughs> because you see what is the so-called erotic tension here. It's not simply that uh, we know that ratatata means ejaculation, the movement, and so on. But what adds obscenity is this very obscene form. Like, if you take ratatata, the words away, you lose precisely the erotic dimension. And I claim this ratatata is that embarrassing detail, like in Sex and the City, sticking the finger up your ass, which makes all of it really, uh, which makes all of it uh, really, uh, which makes all of it really embarrassing. Uh, again, of course, I am totally, uh, this is, I'm totally uh, opposed to this entire scene, which I'm well aware, even if it superficially turns around the relationship and men serve women and so on, it's really uh, male chauvinism at its worst and uh, also uh, it's not yet Lubitsch. I think the mature Lubitsch would never have shown this directly. But again, the insight is the right one, that the true obscenity are these details finger up your ass, or ratatata, even the words, which uh, add surplus enjoyment to what otherwise would have been a simple animal uh, copulation or whatever. Now I come to my central problematic topic, which is why, and this is, I think, the best example of Lubitsch's avoiding immediacy, mediation. Mediation is not just about not showing it directly and then we all know what it means. Mediation means that the very form of not doing it directly eroticizes it. I, let me, I will give an example which I mentioned here five times, but only now I got a, only now I got a, a nice clip. Open file. It's a very short one that I mentioned from that movie, Brust of, uh, uh, Brust of the Short. Short clip, you will see it immediately. Just. Do you want to come up for a coffee? I don't drink coffee. I haven't got any. It's so simple, I mean, it's so stupidly simple, but what happens here is not just she doesn't say directly, but this very detour eroticizes the situation. Can you imagine her saying directly? I don't care about coffee, come up and fuck me. I mean, it's, you know, it's not only that it would be too vulgar direct, but it would have been precisely de-eroticized. And Lewis was aware of this, that the true obscenity is, resides precisely in these obscene gestures. And I found, I don't have time to develop it now, the latest example, did some of you are some of you aware of it? Now the latest product of on our market, I love it. This is the market publicity dialectics at its best, so-called uh, uh, light phones, as opposed to smartphones. 
how they subtly mobilize the entire critical ideological point that that uh, smartphones really enslave you and so on. Light phones are very small cell phones reduced to just the elementary. Phone calls and you can check email and alarm clock, whatever. But the publicity is incredible. It says something like it's a phone which respects you and gives you your freedom. You are not all the time. Uh, it basically sell it as a defense against superego. If you have a real smartphone, you're all the time nervous. Check the Twitter, Facebook, this, that. No, it allows you, they even use this term, to spend more quality time with those about whom you really care. It gives you, and I like this so much because the implication is they say it. You can leave your smart home at home your smartphone. So it's so nice, first they tell you, oh, you can have a smartphone, you can do everything, and so on and so on, and that's the beautiful Hegelian dialectic of publicity, then you have to get another phone to free you from all the bullshit that was involved, and they, they make it still clear you need a smartphone. Just if you want a little bit of freedom, you can escape from it and have just the just the light phone, and so on, you know, and again, it's almost like this, coffee, no coffee, you know, it's the same logic, like, uh, you get a smartphone, but then you get rid of the smartphone, and you feel free, and they use all this publicity, all this, it sounds almost Marxist, like the message is, all this te technology which apparently liberates you, is really enslaving you, you become slave of it, so, why not get rid of it, return to your respect? It's even one of the publicity slogans is a phone which respects you, which gives you back your dignity. Uh, uh, okay, back to the main line, which is why I think Lubitsch would have been horrified at the idea of today as one of the offsprings of uh, of uh, Me Too and so on, the idea of sexual contracts, like, you know, to be truly sure that we are not harassing each other, the partners should sign a contract, stating your, there are different versions, the basic are, they both agree to use a condom or not, you profess your religious orientation, you have AIDS or not, and the limits, like anal sex, yes and no, and so on, and so on. Well, I have, uh, I have problems with this. I will not repeat my old usual points. Uh, I will just like to focus on some more new points. In replying to those who insisted on a difference between uh, Weinstein, brutal rapist, and Louis C.K., me too activists claim that those who say this have no idea about how male violence works. Like, I read this literally in my book, that, that, uh, who are me to say that Louis C.K. showing you his penis and masturbating can be less violent than somebody really brutally raping you. That it can be emotionally as bad as that. So we others have no right to tell women what is, uh, how, she feels, and so on, and so on. They always refer to feeling. 
Don't tell a woman how she feels. Ah, here problems for me begin. Are they aware that they are reproducing the classical Cartesian anti-feminist cliché, women feel? That is to say that while men can reflect, women feel. And there they cannot move in a way beyond their feelings. A woman doesn't even, uh, so, cannot move, so her feeling should be the ultimate uh, measure. Then uh, another uh, topic I want to enter here. You, maybe some of you know I got engaged in this strange debate. I even didn't mean to criticize him so much, which, ironically, I mean, one of the greatest thinkers of 20th century, Jordan Peterson, no? And, uh, a guy attacked me ferociously, his partisan, and quoted, and it almost sounds convincing, he quoted as the, I mean, he of course totally misread me, and in a way I was satisfied, because usually I'm perceived as the guy who is secretly anti-feminist, Islamophobic, whatever, but now that I clearly attacked Jordan Peterson, the reaction was that I'm just the usual politically correct guy who believes in women's enslavement and so on. And then as the ultimate argument against me, uh, he quoted, he said there is one phenomenon which ruins the entire argumentation about women resisting their submission, uh, Fifty Shades of Grey. It's, uh, as the guy claims on TV, you can find the clip, it's a woman a novel written by a woman, about a woman, and immensely popular against women, and a novel depicting women's submission. So, how to answer this? Of course, we should at any price avoid the cheap pseudo-psychoanalytic counterclaims in the style of uh, uh, these novels like Fifty Shades of Grey, uh, make it clear that even women who appear to demand emancipation from male power are effectively in the thrall of a profound unconscious masochist desire. You know, this stupid old claim, women who demand emancipation are just frustrated women and who secretly also long to be brutally late uh, or whatever. I think that uh, uh, the, the first thing to do is, and it was already done, I'm not saying anything new here, just repeating the point, to take a closer look at what Fifty Shades of Grey does. It does not simply, it does not imply enjoying actual subordination, but enjoying a fantasy of subordination, which is by far not the same thing, and should in no way be interpreted as a call for actual subordination. Subordina subordination. Again, my old point, you know, if there is one thing that psychoanalysis teaches us, it's that if you fantasize about something, the most brutal thing there is could be if somebody from outside imposes on you this fantasy. And I'm here, I think so, truly pro-feminist, I resist the usual temptation to say, so the women who fantasize about being brutally mishandled are, uh, are really uh, uh, dominated by, may they just internalized male patriarchy. No, it's much more 
ambiguous. Uh, I think that Deleuze uh, made this point, how in masochism, at least this Zacher masoch, theatrical masochism, the so-called victim is the true master. Deleuze was right to emphasize that there is no symmetry between masochism and sadism. It's not I, I, a masochist, want a sadist to mistreat me. No, I want a slave to do exactly in the contract signed what I want him uh, or her or whatever to do to me. In this sense, I'm almost tempted to say that there is some kind of a Oh, it's a horrible movie, Secret Emancipatory Dimension in Fifty Shades of Grey. It's usually, masochists are supposed to be men who wrote a scenario like in Zacher Masoch, Venice in First, who wrote a scenario for the Domina. You know, you do this to me and so on, exactly written theater. Why should only men be doing this? I see Fifty Shades of Grey, at least up to a point, as a woman assuming this role of writing the scenario with the right to withdraw at any point, and so on, and so on. Uh, uh, then the standard, yes, so, uh, then the second thing that you notice in Fifty Shades of Grey is that precisely there is a contract, and that violence is not, I mean, I knew a lady in Slovenia who was in real heart feminine masochism among women, lesbian, and she said, if this is violence, my God, and so on. So it's all gently staged, and so on, and so on. So, my point is that, yes, that's difficult, maybe, for some politically correct persons, but part of feminine liberation, emancipation, should also be, if I am a masochist, I demand the right to write the scenario, to control it, and so on, and so on. Why should only men be allowed to have their dominas and so on and so on? Such a masochist staging, controlled by a woman, up to detail point, has nothing to do with real brutal violence. And just an improvisation here, it's very, not very deep theoretically, but I want to say, what bothers me a little bit, at least in the public image of this Me Too campaign, is how it focuses on a typical scene, which is that of casual sex, a guy seducing a lady or brutally imposing himself on her, and then is the lady coerced into saying yes, and so on, and so on, all that stuff. Okay, this is a problem, I agree. But so many things which can be, in a way, even more violent disappear here. For example, yeah, it's so charming to read about movie stars being harassed by producers and all that stuff, but what about the daily horror in millions of marriages where a woman is exploited by her husband, it's not direct violence, maybe from time to time beaten, they are married, she cannot leave the husband and so on. This is a much less attractive phenomenon of violence, but of course, it's not popular to talk about that. So, uh, let me go on. Uh, next point that I find uh, problematic in this feminine, uh, this movement is the uh, 
the idea, basic idea, that no, no means no, it's not enough. That there can also be a coerced yes. I totally agree with this. Let me read you a quote and then do my critique, which is not critique in the sense of uh, uh, denying anything that's there. Just to show where another dimension of violence resides. A quote from a report of this in a long essay published online on The Guardian. Quote, Badgering someone into quizzy submission might technically be within the law, but it is not the road to a happy sex life, and it may no longer protect a man from public censure. What young men should look for is not the potentially ambiguous absence of no, but the enthusiastic presence of a yes, 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 or affirmative consent. In 218, no means no is totally antiquated. It pulls all the pressure on the person in the most vulnerable position. A woman that is someone that if someone doesn't have the capacity to, of the confidence to speak up, they are going to be violated. If somebody isn't an enthusiastic yes, if they are hesitating, if they like, oh, I don't know, at this point in time, that equals no. End of quote. To avoid any misunderstanding, I totally agree with this. How, you know, this... Uh, Wavering, yes, means no, it's a subtle game, no problem here. What I reproach to this quote, line of thought, is not that it's, as usually liberals, Catherine Deneuve type of liberals do, and they, don't they go a little bit too far? No, they don't go far enough. Why not? Let me elaborate it a little bit. Uh, uh, what is problematic is what they call, in this quote, the enthusiastic pressure of a... Yes, yes, the enthusiastic, sorry, presence of a yes, yes, yes. I immediately see here an opening for ridiculing women. Imagine, I'm sorry to be almost personal, imagine, sorry, I apologize in advance, that you, and you have the full right to do it, you see a guy, you like him, you want to fuck him. But let's say the guy is, why not, it's not bad, very politically correct. And it doesn't work in that way, some ambiguous hints and so on. He is afraid that it's not a full yes. So how do you then express this enthusiastic yes, yes, yes? Sorry, but the implication is that what? Should you jump ahead of him, yes, yes, please fuck me or whatever. I mean, you know, the whole point of... Seduction is that uh, this formula, enthusiastic yes, 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 is so ambiguous, you don't do it in this way. It doesn't work. Or uh, another problem that I see here, the other part of this logic is how they say uh, every person should have partner in a sexual act, should have the right to withdraw at any moment. My God. Do these people know how sex life really goes on? From numerous friends of mine, of both sexes, I heard for decades, I hear stories of how this 
right to say no. Yes, I am for this right. But we should be aware how it can be used for extreme brutal emotional violence. I know men, disgusting men, who boasted to me how the, uh, the strategy is to really arouse a woman. You are naked with her, she is all sorry for the vulgarity, wet and so on. And then when she is really into it, you say, not in this world, but de facto, sorry, now I lost interest, I want to use my right to withdraw. Or women doing the same, and so on. Can you imagine something more brutal than arousing your partner, giving him all the, and then use this as the utter humiliation? This is what fascinates. So my point, you got my point, is not, no, this means we can rape women, I'm not crazy. It means just that there are no simple formulas for conduct which guarantee it, that there will not be violence. That's sexuality. Every ambiguity, every rule can be, in this sense, uh, uh, can be turned around. And this is where I find problematic. Did you read it? I found it a little bit uh, depressive. Uh, did you read uh, the, uh, uh, now Monica Lewinsky joined Me Too campaign. And she claimed, as it is predictable, that uh, she was really a victim of Bill Clinton. I mean, she admits she made the initiative and so on, but she said she was young, she didn't know what she was doing, and since Bill Clinton was first in position of power, the most powerful man and much older than her, he should have rejected her and put her at her proper place, as she said. I find this logic pretty terrifying, because it, first, uh, what did she do wrong? I mean, one problem is marital fidelity. Okay, if you believe in that, and I tempted to believe in that, she was obviously, by trying to seduce Bill Clinton, in some sense, unfair towards Hillary. I consider this as a serious argument. But if you ext uh, abstract from this, she just uh, enacted her desire, and probably Bill Clinton's political power was part of his attraction for her. She wanted to be asked by that guy, and she acted on it. What's wrong about this? Why shouldn't a woman make the initiative, and so on? But. Uh, what I find so suspicious in her defense is this presenting women as, to, even when a woman, as she was, when she was Bill Clinton's uh, whatever, that in some office in White House working, that even when she is totally active, she is really a victim. I don't like this false innocence. It reminds me of an old story that I repeated often here, you must remember it, that about in what happened in Australia some ten years ago, where a woman was raped walking alone on the street, uh, is a Muslim woman by a series of guys, and then some top is Muslim authority there blamed the woman. He said, he used that infamous metaphor that uh, if you leave a piece of meat unwrapped on the street and dogs eat it, you would not blame the dogs. You would have blamed the idiot who left the meat there. And the, of course, the parallel was in the same way. If a woman 
or though she was not naked, walks on the street, if she gets raped, even if men are active and she is raped, she is totally responsible. She should be punished. But isn't a symmetrical reversal, it's not quite symmetrical, power relations are different, but nonetheless, isn't there a symmetrical reversal with regard to this, with regard to what Monica Lewinsky did? In both cases, she was active, the way the man undoubtedly raped a girl in Australia. But the interpretation is, even if she is active, she is innocent like the man, because the object of their activity was the one which really instigated the act. Now, I'm not... Uh, uh, sorry, should we cut it off? What's the secret message? Tell me. Uh, what the... That concerned me. <laughs> um, Jacqueline has made the following point. Yeah. Ready? If the topic is sexual harassment, it should be a conversation. What do you mean by this? That women also... So there should be some kind of possibility of coming back on the topics, on the way in which you're addressing this topic. Yeah, but I'm not making a general point about it. I don't think I here presented some kind of a... I think I even did in some sense, maybe you will disagree, something which is not totally dissimilar to what, because of my eye problem, I wasn't yet able to do it, something similar to what you did, I was told that you did a good text for London Review of Books about all these ambiguities of me too and so on. Because again, let's make it clear. My point is not women are exaggerating and so on. My point is just how precisely, because of the utter ambiguity of uh, sexual tensions and so on. You cannot guarantee anything in this direct way. It can be turned around and so on and so on. But okay, but let I think, me... I think the point that Jacqueline's making, can speak for Jacqueline, yeah. um, is, is, the, is one about process. Yeah. Process about, in the one sense? One about process in the sense of who speaks about sexual harassment and the way in which that's taken up. I agree, but I would be very afraid to draw from here a conclusion that, that women have some big kind of privilege here. I think that my other line of defense here, not of men, would be that the way to address all these harassments would be to bring in men as victims, not victims of women, but I claim that every time when men are violent, in some, now I speak for men as myself. In some sense, they are themselves, they all, a rapist always in some sense enacts his impotence or, typically example in Mexico, I read books on rapes here, uh, there, and it's always the example that, uh, that uh, men who feel threatened by single women, blah, blah, blah. so uh, I think that the way to fight it is to, not to make men innocent victims of circum. No, we are responsible when we rape. I'm not saying, no, we are not guilty, blah, 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 we just. But what I'm saying is that our aggressivity and so on is not simply a sign of our power. It's in some deeper sense a sign of our impotent frustrations and so on. We are also the victims of the situation. You want to... Victims of paedophilia, you know, they're, they're, uh, the 
Yeah, but where do you see here? Okay, I agree, but that's another topic. Why do you think that I'm soft there? No, my answer there would have been just, and I'm here uh, absolutely without mercy for photophilia. But what fascinates me is how things change from 68. I often repeat in my text this story, how, do you know that in late 60s, early 70s, French journals uh, published a proclamation, public call, signed by all big names, Charter, Foucault, not Lacan, goes to his honor, uh, Althusser, named them, claiming that incest and child sex should, the prohibition should be abolished, that there will only be sexual liberation when parents will be able to have sex with their small, not yet adolescent, children, and all, everybody signed it. So, I would, I would like to point out how this changes, how strange that a thing which at that point was generally accepted in the French media as uh, liberation, is now the ultimate horror. So um, maybe we should just move on to the last bit of your talk, and then we can pick up the yeah, issues in yeah. a more conversational way. As yeah, say. yeah. So again, sorry, with children. I'm uh, fanatically against uh, <laughs> child <laughs> pornography. My point is not let al I'm just saying how, although we should be against child pornography, mm. I still think that this elevation of children, of Child, uh, of raping children, pedophilia, as the ultimate sin, is part of an anti-Freudian move. With all our sexual liberation and so on, we regressed with regard to Freud. Children are considered innocent, asexualized. It's, uh, it's considered almost uh, uh, the ultimate sin. So it just interests me this historical shift of how, what began as a, I remember when I was young, some British feminist, if I'm wrong, I think Shulamit Firestone wrote again how the true liberation will only become when uh, parents will be able to sleep with their children and so on and so on. Now this is the ultimate horror. So nonetheless, things are not as automatic as they, as automatic as they, uh, as they appear here. So again, uh, okay. I'm getting caught here. Maybe we should. Uh, uh, maybe maybe we should. Uh, maybe I should uh, stop here. My uh, my central point is not that everything is blurred and so on and so on. We need precise rules. But I think that at least we should shift, as it were. First, we should be aware that while we need firm legal regulations, and I think, for example, do you have it in the UK, a regulation like that it makes uh, unwanted imposed sex in a marriage also a rape. Can her wife prosecute her husband for rape? That's, for example, something maybe much more important than all the politically correct stuff for me. Can you even imagine what unthinkable horrors are going on at this level? I mean, let's turn to this misery of daily life. And also, what I don't like here is this idea of the basic scenario of 
Me too. Which is as if the original scene is poor girl, man aggressively attacking her, harassing her, and then how can she defend herself? Yes, it's very important and so on. But now I will say something extremely vulgar. But millions of people, men, women and others, do want to have sex, desperately even. And I think the most refined forms of violence are not simply, are precisely those who manipulate this desire for sex. The problem is not how to protect women from male desire but how to make them subjects who can regulate it, instigate it, and drop out when they want, and so on, and so on. I would like to have not a woman who is just afraid, oh my God, how that guy looked at me, I never felt more objectified, and so on, and so on. I would like to regulate how a woman comes and says, desires, I want to fuck that guy like crazy. How do, do I do it? That's the true sexual liberation for me that woman is expected to do it, and even more. Can I just conclude with a funny detail? But it's prohibited, funny, funny. Yes, but it's prohibited to mention it. The majority of women and men, let's face it, I include myself in this category, are in some vulgar sense not beautiful not sexually overattractive. I know I can be accused if I say this for, you know, like, uh, oh, seeing others only as sex objects and so on and so on. But it's a brutal truth, which means that, like, can we imagine the, not suffering in the sense of torture, but the inner turmoil and so on of people who are simply most of their life, not in a position to be sexual objects. Where we have in Slovenia, you and him also have it, this nice expression that the other potential partner simply looks through you, you know, you are not noticed. Millions are terribly suffering like this. How to approach this without falling into sexist uh, uh, traps and so on and so on. I mean, there is so much more to say, to say here. And again, that worries me. Because, you know, to finish, Arthur Kessler, we know him, he wrote something precisely apropos of Holocaust. It was very heroic. He said that the horror of terrible crimes like Holocaust is that it doesn't corrupt only the executors. In some more subtle way, it corrupts also the victims. And, you know, these problems emerge here. Okay, I will stop now just to tell you that what I, I will do at a much more serious level in uh, summer, uh, sorry, at summer school, what am I doing now, this may amuse you, serious, uh, is to address finally the big metaphysical questions. Uh, we have now Habermasians who exert some kind of authority, and then we have these new ontologists, from Graham Harman, new materialism, object-oriented ontology, this happy return to ontology. I think it all began with Deleuze. You know, the idea is the reaction against deconstruction. Like, deconstruction is caught in this vicious circle of uh, just deconstructing in some abyss of reflexivity, 
offering this happy vision of like the left, this multiple happy worlds of uh, 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 I don't know multitudes interacting and so on. Even Badiou is too much into this. I think this idea that this eternal focus on negativity should be finally left behind, and we need a new positive ontology. I'm opposed to it. I'm radically opposed to this, but nonetheless, they are approaching the right question, which is, like, I always asking this my deconstructionist friends, like Avital Ornel and Eduardo Cadava in New York, okay, cut the bullshit. What do you think? What is reality? Can we even ask this question? Are things out there in the world? Do we subject constitute it? And so on and so on. And what I get from them is usually just some social symbolic constructive. It's very difficult to talk about it. Isn't reality as we know it always constructed through social practice and so on and so on? That's not enough. So I will try to approach directly and my result to provoke you sexually even will be that, don't laugh, I'm not crazy, that uh, sexuality is our privileged contact with the absolute. Don't laugh. I'm not becoming, in my old age, uh, a new ager. I'm not saying when you are in the orgasmic trial, there you glimpse divinity. No, quite the opposite. Sexuality, I mean in a Lacanian sense, that the basic ontological feature is the inconsistent antagonism of reality and the, our basic experience of this constitutive failure, incompleteness of reality is sexuality. In this precise sense, sexuality is our contact with the absolute. I will develop more this later. Now, believe me or not, I stop talking. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Before we get started on the question, I think Jacqueline wants to come in. And I also wanted to just ask you something before. Is that okay? Very briefly. I want to, I'd like to hear you say something about limits. Um, I was in the, I don't know if you saw the film The Last Laugh, which is about, it raises the question, it's a film about the question, can you make jokes about Auschwitz? And there's a, there's a, a wonderful um, exchange in it between Mel Brooks, you know, the producers, film about, a yeah, comedy yeah, about yeah. Nazis, and Sarah Silverman, the American comic. Uh, Sarah Silverman gives this um, absolutely, well, what could I call it? I don't know, horrific Holocaust joke at an awards ceremony for Mel Brooks. And Mel Brooks says, look, I can make jokes about Nazis, but I can't make jokes about Auschwitz. I admire her, but I couldn't do that. I'm just interested in whether you think there is anything that's um, outside the limits of what can be commented on, what there can be joked about. There obviously are limits. For example, if you ask me, I will be very personal, my personal equivalent to that, but horror equivalent to that, stick finger into your ass, is I read somewhere and the industrialized forum shocked me. You know that one of the things that Germans, for the use of torture in camps, produced massively is like, you know, those machines simple to break nuts and so on. Eggs, balls, squashes. They, so that you put a testicle and squash it. And there is something for me, okay, 
I can imagine it, although in no way doing it that some brutal pack in an act of despair squeezes your balls. But isn't there something terrifying in how you industrialize yeah. also but this? I, think I'm I asking, find it a little bit difficult. But I think I'm asking you what, what you think your responsibility might be at the level of what can and can't be spoken about and how it can, how it can be spoken about. I think with regard about. to political correctness that it all, I'm a Leninist here, concrete analysis of a concrete situation, it all depends on the discursive effect. If the effect is without any doubt that of horror, not of secret pleasure. And my model, I mentioned it here, of secret pleasure is, and it's confirmed again, I spoke with many people. Did you see the TV miniseries uh, Handmaid's Tale? I'm against it. I, because I think that, and all my friends are confirming this to me. Yes, you're supposed to be horrified that new patriarchal world but all my friends are secretly enjoying it. My God, how wonderful they treat women like this, that ritual, that ritual. They are all fascinated by this world. They cross the limit for me. Although nothing horrible happens. The limit is, does the horror depicted feed you with some obscene enjoyment? The limit is strictly at this level. And you can go pretty far here. I think we even talked about it. You know what he did? Maybe problematic. Uh, Larry David, in one of his curb, or curb Your Enthusiasm, he has a party stage where two guys meet, two survivors. One Auschwitz survivor and one survivor who won the TV reality show Survivor. And they fight who suffered more, and of course, because it's a comedy, the reality TV show wins. You know, like, you, at least you in Auschwitz, you were in those warm huts, what about me out in the jungle then? And, I am tempted to buy this. It's not humiliating, because we all know it's a bad taste joke, and the way it is shot, we all know that's the point, that you cannot even compare the two, that the true horror was Auschwitz. That's the presupposition of it working. So my answer would be, one has to be, instead of simple direct rules, Auschwitz is out of touch or whatever. One should ask this crucial question. Are you meant to be horrified by the victim? How does it work? Or is it secret enjoyment? As Lacan said, we are always responsible for our enjoyment. Okay, thank you. John Jacqueline. Well, I would like to respond to Slavoj, but I realize there are hundreds of people in this room who may want to say something. But you can speak on their behalf. <laughs> Like no, I think, I'm sure the hundreds of people would like to hear your response. Yes. No, uh, Jacqueline, let you go. All right, I could be co-director of the Berkeley Institute of Humanities, where I'm a colleague with Slavoj, but I have a responsibility to the respond okay. to this evening's talk. And we've had conversations yeah, 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 yeah. before. Let me start by saying, you say in the summer school you're going to talk about something much more serious. I don't think anything could have been more serious than the discussion that's taking place today in terms of what it touched on, the question of limits, who speaks for who and how. Yeah. I think that is, those are the questions that have been raised no, no, no. in a fully gendered dimension by what you've this evening. Let me start by saying that I think your analysis of the smiling lieutenant is fabulous. And Too I, simple. Much more can be said. See the movie. Sure. Okay, I will see the movie. Anyway, I thought that was quite new and your most brilliant summer, yeah. and I also thought 
your point about the 1960s, when perversion was seen as radical, whereas in fact is the other side. Yeah, yeah, power, yeah, yeah. And the suspicion of hysteria, which is much more in touch with the unconscious, was a kind of anti-feminist plot. So there were really strong points in what you said, which I appreciate. But? Yeah, the but's coming. <laughs> <laughs> okay, the but is, I'll put it at its cruise, and then yeah, I'll please. You cannot speak for Monica Lewinsky. For? You Monica. cannot speak for Monica Lewinsky. You cannot tell her what she was experiencing and what she wanted and what she didn't want. What Monica Lewinsky has done is not turn herself into a victim, she's turned herself into an agent by speaking out now and by rereading the experience she had as a young intern. Mm -hmm. You spoke entirely from the position of her assumed desire. You cannot speak for her, you cannot assume her desire, you cannot speak from that position. Neither can I, by the way. But still, nonetheless, I think this is a real problem. Your description of the Me Too movement as a Cartesian anti-feminist... But that specific feature of it, yes, yeah. because it says that women only feel, is for me a parody of what the Me Too movement is. The Me Too movement, as far as I see it, yeah. is to do with thought, organization, reinterpretation of original and earlier experiences, reflection and struggle. That's to say, it is not about turning women into victims. It is saying there has been an abuse of power. But mm. it is saying that in response to that, you can organize, speak, communicate, learn, rethink, and remodel what should be the correct power relations between men and women in the field of sexual life. But I agree with you, all the bets are off sexuality is lawless. It seems to me that what the Me Too campaign is presenting us with is the problem of the vicious end game of sexual harassment, which is about power, right? Yeah. About not saying all men equate that identification, because then feminism is finished if all men are yeah. yeah. that, right? It's finished. Mm -hmm. But also at the same time saying there's something about sexuality which evades the law, and how do you put those two things onto the same page? And in relationship to your question about protecting women from other things than harassment from Harvey Weinstein, which is bad enough, there is in British law coercive control. It's passed into British law in the last few years, and it's about all the forms of domestic abuse that take place inside families. 700,000 farm worker women wrote to the chief Hollywood pundits and said, we are being abused on a daily basis. I think what's really crucial about this movement is that it is allowing women to speak in a way about victimization, which does not re-victimize them. And I think you have to get that double turn, otherwise it's too easy to parody it, it's too easy to call it, mm -hmm. to call it out as a Cartesian plot, saying women are only feeling. I think that's mm -hmm. the last word that it is. So, I just think there's, a, there's another discussion to be had, and you know, I've said this to you before, so we've had this conversation. Yeah. I would like more awareness from you of what it means for you to speak in that way, to demonstrate the most violent moments with physical gestures, to ask us to relive them with you. There are moments when it really, something works for me, as in perversion, yeah. as in the smiling lieutenant, and then something just goes off. I think what Stephen was saying was, there's a limit that gets crossed, and it makes me feel very open on behalf, and I'll be very jealous yeah. in this case, on behalf of my women students and colleagues, some of whom are sitting in the room. So I thought I needed to speak. Okay. At the same time, as, as you know, mm -hmm. your work on psychoanalysis and politics mm -hmm. it continues to be of importance mm -hmm. to me individually and to many other people. Thank you. Okay. Uh, I, I, I agree. Uh.
I agree almost with everything you said, but nonetheless I want to be more precise here when you said I don't have the right to speak for Monica Lewinsky, but uh, I'm not, in, I just follow her words. What I objected to is her self-presentation as, oh, the guy Bill Clinton should have controlled me, I don't know what I was doing, and so on and so on. I'm not saying, yes, she's guilty, she knew what she was doing. I'm saying she had the full right to do what she was doing. Abusing, okay, okay, but you know now I'm sorry for, now I will really speak as a male chauvinist. If a nice young girl comes to you and raises her skirt, you know. Her description in her book, I read it. <laughs> she describes the scene. She uh, gave him the document, then she withdrew and raised her skirt. Her description in her memoirs. So, you know, yes, you can say this, but I would like to assert her as a subject. So would I. Yeah, like mm -hmm. also in the, uh, 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 that's uh, about, uh, Monica Lewinsky, about this uh, Cartesian stuff and so on and so on. For example, the case of uh, why, uh, what uh, Louis C.K. was doing and so on and so on. I think the case also against him can be made, as you said, in a much more reflexive terms, you know, like uh, what he was also doing wrong and so on and so on. What bothered me is, and I do find it quite often, this reference just to, you cannot tell me what I am feeling. I'm almost tempted to say, with all the horror this implies against women and men, ultimately I don't care what you are feeling. Because your feelings are not the truth about you. You can be feeling good about something which is horrible. If there is a lesson of psychoanalysis, is that the moment a woman feels bad, hurt, it's usually the beginning of liberation. The true horror, the true victims are for me women who are objectively abused and they will feel, feel good in it, accept it. So for me, that's my whole point. Feeling is not the ultimate measure. And I would like, more, but again, what you said, I hope we are here uh, clear. I, I am not in any way uh, 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 trying to, uh, although, okay, I would, okay, I will give you the ultimate argument here, which is also against men. We all, uh, we, I always hear this, who am I to talk about uh, women how they feel, yeah, but it's automatically assumed that women can talk about how we men feel. That if I were to be Weinstein, my, and he's a disgusting guy, I don't have any problems with death penalty. I'm an old partisan of death penalty. Even the guy like Weinstein, my solution would be a good Stalinist trial where he would demand death penalty for himself, you know, but okay, that's another story. But what I'm saying is that if I were to be Weinstein, I would say, it appeared as if I'm putting pressure on you and raping you. But how do you know what I felt? I really felt provoked by you and I was the real victim and so on. It's bullshit. But precisely, there are rapists who feel like that, that they are really victims. And I'm just very distrustful of feelings. And out of my respect for women, I think they can do it much better than 
playing this feeling game. And if they are doing wonderful, I totally agree. I mean, a mega, I wrote about this, a mega thing is happening today. Basic rules are changing, which are just not, not just bourgeois society rules. Which are basically rules of thousands of years, I would have said. Something profound is changing, and it's a, a wonderful thing. My only worry is that it will be somehow like that, uh, light phone, smartphone, recaptured by the... You know where I... Can I make a personal political remark to you, friendly? You remember, you were up here the last time we had the debate on South Africa. This is now causing me sleepless nights. I would like so much for them to succeed. Now, as you probably know, ANC decided to, to, uh, to uh, dispossess white farmers. I pray day and night that the result will not be against the, their will through Western manipulations, a new Zimbabwe, and then again, you know, all white liberals saying, you know, we love blacks, but you see, they always screw it up, and so on and so on. I'm so worried. I really, and I'm not secretly a racist enjoying it. I would love them to succeed. But I'm so afraid. Do, do you, they have some connections there? This is important. Sorry, I'm not... Uh, do they have a precise plan how to do it? How, what, you know? I mean, don't you agree? This is maybe the crucial event. If they succeed or fail, it's in a way the moment of truth of all this African liberation. Sorry, this is not our topic today. Just quickly, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Has been at the heart of the Fees Must Fall and the Rose Must Fall protest movements in South Africa. It is the issue. Yeah, yeah. It is the issue. I don't have an answer to whether if they go down that. But we agree that it's the issue, and not just of South Africa, of the entire region okay. there. So no. we'll, we'll, we'll see if other people want to come in. I thought a few might. Yes, okay. Let's, let's go for the lady there and then Jean, yeah? But lady there first. Maybe we'll collect a couple of thoughts. I, I actually agree with what you said about me too, so I don't think that Jackson speaks to a woman, you have the right to speak on, on behalf of all women. Um, anyway, that's just fine. But she didn't imply that. No. No. That wasn't the claim. Anyway, my question about psychoanalysis. Um, I'm a trainee in psychoanalytic psychotherapy, and as well as reading for and kind and so forth, we have to do these seminars about um, risk, child protection, God. Yeah, yeah. Um, suicide, um, and all these occasions where we have to stop the analysts and call the police or call the public mm -hmm. service. Um, so for me, this is deeply problematic because we've actually been told, you know, your you, you, confidentiality within ourselves has, has a limit. Um, so I was, I was wondering what, what you thought about that. I know you were interested in philosophy of psychology. Not so much practice, but no, no, no. I'm. I never. I'm. Uh, this is my limit to tell you yeah, to you know. enter real psychoanalysis. Yeah. About Freud and you know, going back to a pre-Freudian idea of era. Um, for me, I was thinking about the state and the neoliberal state is actually very intrusive. It, it doesn't um, sort of invest in education you, and housing, but it does intrude in, you, in people's lives. So I was wondering what, what you thought okay. about that. Okay. Let's, let's just hold it. Let's get Jean's question as well. Could you just pass the mic over? Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is 
Yeah. I'm, I'm thinking of uh, Lacan's use of um, uh, Socrates and Alcibiades to think of what happens in transference and seduction in yeah. yeah. situation. That Alcibiades thinks he uh, wants to be seduced by uh, Socrates, but actually what Socrates understands is that he really wants himself. He wants his own desire. He wants yeah. Yeah. Uh -huh. a, a transference of his own mm -hmm. desire. So he doesn't give in to um, the seduction seduction mm. of Alcibiades, and that's the, the what happens in what should happen in psychoanalysis. If you respond to the seduction of the Alexander, mm. you shouldn't be an analyst, because the analyst actually, by refusing to be seduced, allows the you get the point. And yeah, I think yeah. it's the same thing wherever there's a power relationship, there's a transference. So you know, Clinton was the you know the head of the United States of America. She was a young teenage girl. As there's the power differentials means that there's a trans transference, and so it was, I do agree with her that it was up to him to set the limits. Okay. Maybe okay. I'm here. Oh, I uh, find myself. Let's take, let's take one more. There's a, a man at the right at the back. Sorry, the man just got, and then, and then we'll, if we can take those three. Yeah, 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 yeah. You speak into the microphone. Yeah. Okay. Is, uh, what is your opinion on the complex negative ontology, such as of Max Stirner, so considering all things that are things that come to just be so a bit slower, a bit sorry, slower, I'm sorry, a bit, bit slower. I didn't okay. get, sorry, sorry please, I'm sorry. yeah, I'm sorry. Okay, so what is your opinion on, on? the complete negative ontology, such as of uh, Max Stirner, which uh, like denies completely all fixed concepts? Okay, thanks. So, two there that connect together. One is about the role of the psychoanalyst or, or psychotherapist and when it's discarded in the in you context. Mean, uh, no, that's that one. Right. And then Jean's question, uh, Jean's point really about the, um, the significance of the, psychoanalytic, the psychoanalyst's own austerity. And then this question here about negative ontology. It's a broad one, that one, but what, what can you do with that in two or three minutes? Okay, I would almost, I'm sorry, but prefer to begin with you. Uh, I know it's a beautiful logic, the only, I'm sorry if I'm now brutal, not against you, but against many Lacanians, at least in France, that I know. I can say this, maybe if somebody is recording it now, they can prosecute me that. So don't do it. Almost all <laughs> Lacanians that I know violate this rule. And to be extremely brutal, they screw like crazy with their patients or whatever you want and so on and so on. Some of them even claim that you manage it intelligently. Having sex with them with a distance can... Can I just go back on that? I know many patients of the Cunnians who have been violated by top the Cunnians yeah. in France and they have been devastated by it. Yeah. Yeah. The analysis has been ruined. And they've been unable to go back into analysis, and their desire has been affected, their lives have been uh, hugely affected. So I speak, uh, speak close to a lot of women who yeah. have been abused by the Korean analysts. I totally agree with and you here. My problem is just with... Uh, okay, now, my God, I will appear as one example of a role that I usually make fun of all the time. I know, but you know where I find a little bit hypocrisy here in Monica Lewinsky, nonetheless. But she knew fully that she had a transference, that this is the most powerful guy in the world. That's what probably attracted her to him. And now I will say something horrible. If you abstract from 
question of violating marriage, blah, blah, fidelity, what would be wrong for him to have a little bit of sex discreetly with Bill Clinton? I don't think anyone would be really hurt and so on. Who knows? Probably not. Why shouldn't she say, not complain, but, yeah, yeah, I wanted to have sex with him discreetly there in the corner of the Oval Office. But, but when it came out, she paid the price in a way that he didn't. Ah, here I would, yes. The, she, this was, she, here I totally agree with you. And that's why she, she was almost, she almost took her life. The effects went That I agree. No, that was shameful, I know. But don't forget. The real evil character in the story is a woman, but another woman. Who was that evil Republican woman, you remember, who manipulated her and so on and so on? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but I agree with you. I agree with you here, but you know what's my problem? But admit something else. Even in, forget about psychoanalysis, in ordinary flirting and so on, sex, there is this power component is always there. And it's an impossible task to say, you know, like, I, sorry for vulgarity, that's my style. I flirt with a woman, let's do it, and then any one of us say, sorry, there is a power differential transference, we cannot do it. I don't like this. I don't, I think you should simply take transference into the game. I wouldn't treat transference as a, necessary absolute obstacle, like... Okay. Do you want to... Uh, uh, no, 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 sorry. Just the last one, because that Stirner and so on. Yeah. It's a nice philosophical question, but uh, I will talk more about this in July, in the summer school. I am... Uh, so you I, will have to sign I don't up. like, okay. if I got it, if you identify Stirner as a guy who advocates some kind of radical negativity, dissolving of all forms, and so on and so on. I don't think there is something really radical or... Uh, you know, today it's much more radical to propose a new, even if it's fixed, more just social forum, than to play this game every forum alienates us, ossified us, I don't believe in this sense in radical negativity, in even in sexuality. Let me tell you a terrifying, very short, don't worry, accident that happened to me once in the United States. <coughs> it's a disgusting evening where we didn't know each other after my talk, and we were asked by a professor, each of us should present his field of work, his job, where he's employed, and his sexual orientation. And I exploded, like, fuck you, first you tell me how much you earn, because this is typical American. The guy will tell you when he had sex the last night, no problem, but you ask him, okay, what's your family fortune? How much do you earn? How they treat you as if, no way. But okay, then a lady there said, I am joyously bisexual. And I find it very sad, because later I overheard her saying to a friend, isn't this sad, that she really is heterosexual, but she felt that if she says this, she will appear too fixed, too conservative, and she said she felt that it treated her career better to claim that she is more dynamic, uh, shifting identities, and so on and so on. I am totally opposed to this 
cult of, you know, you shift your identities, you reconstruct yourself. There is nothing necessarily progressive in it. I have also, I have the great achievement of the left would not be to fluidify relations. Capitalism is doing enough of it, but to invent a new steady social forum with which functions and so on. I'm all for forum, stability, good manners, whatever. And the first one, I didn't quite, I'm sorry, I like the question, but I maybe lost the point. Freud, uh, uh, Freud, uh, all that stuff. When, do, when does the analyst step out of role? When, when, when the should the analyst step out of role? Uh, this is the problem. You know what's the problem? And I spoke with some analysts in France who were not bad analysts. The problem is that, and Freud experienced this already with Wolfman and others, that once you are an analyst, de facto, it's almost impossible to really do it. To say, okay, now you are in analysis on a couch, I resist transference, blah, 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 but then we meet in dinner, during dinner, and in a way, if you are an analyst, you are always an analyst. Mm. In a, although formally you can say we play the game of stepping out, but there are limits. Like, okay, to be vulgar, but not in a personal way. Let's say that you, nothing personal, just you. No, yeah. You have never, a beautiful is, patient, a girl whom you desire. You cannot say you resist her advances during course, and then you say, but can I invite you to dinner, and then you do everything, you know. It's not just because of some professional ethics, but... And I remember, I will tell you a detail, not a dirty one, but it's typical. I remember when I was, unfortunately, in analysis with Jacqueline Miller, and I had at the beginning a very strong transference, then in some public big reception, I met his father. And it caused me sleepless nights. Because uh, my idea was that somehow a person like Miller, the analyst, shouldn't have a father. It, how can he have a father there, you yeah. know? And I told him that it totally disturbed me. So, you know, it's too easy to say, oh, forget it, now we are not in analysis and so on. No, in some sense, you are always. The analyst is the analyst, and you cannot simply say, Baba, now I can think you, I'm not an analyst or whatever, you know. It's, uh, but what? So it's a privileged role. Sorry? It's like some kind of privileged role. You wouldn't say that about yeah, many other things. Yeah, but it's more or less, uh, that's what Lacan is at his best emphasizes. The truly great analyst appears at the end to disappear, mm. not to remain a charismatic product, mm. but really the shift, mm. the excrement of the process. Mm. A true analyst is not that when you finish the analysis, oh my God, it's the ultimate. You really, the transference should be over. She's scum, somebody who just... And the, the, the problem with analysts is that they are the problem often. I hope you had the same experience in analysis. They don't like this last step. They somehow like very much to remain the charismatic point of transference. And so this is the true ethical. But when you mentioned me, look, my old joke, let's be serious. Can you really imagine me as an analyst? I mean... If you can even imagine me being your analyst, then you must really be crazy and you <laughs> need a, You know what I mean? Like, I, I, I resist so much the idea of it. First, I'm 
in a loving way, I hope, brutal, cruel, me, can you imagine me listening to another person for more than uh, half a minute, you know, me listening there. Second point, I am not interested in dirty details about other people. It's just personal field, fuck off. My, as an analyst, I would tell, my analysis would be, forget about how you saw your father screwing her mother, whatever, but tell me about second book of Hegel's logic, about <laughs> passage from reflexive determination to determinate reflection, you know. That would be the real trauma for me is some conceptual past. I'm very naive here, and I think that ultimately, I hope we agree here, Freud is absolutely, and Lacan, against this vulgar form of desublimation in the sense of it's all really about sex and so on and so on. No, Lacan absolutely believes that there are spiritual forms which should not be reduced in this vulgar way to some sexual desires. Like Lacan explodes when you tell him that Feminine spirituality, in the sense of being a non-convent, feminine mysticism, should absolutely not be accounted for in these vulgar terms, you know. The woman wanted to fuck, she screwed it up, now she entered. It's an authentic subjective position. That it's very important to keep this. The psychoanalysis does not mean that every sublimation in the sense, vulgar sense of escaping sexuality is a kind of a repression or escape from it. If we can learn anything today from today's mess is that promiscuous sexuality is as a rule an escape. They are really trying to escape from something. Good, thank you. I don't think we're going to have time for another round. So just to say, uh, if you really want to engage in conversation with Slavoj, sign up for the summer school. Um, it's really cheap. No, and it's really worth doing. <laughs> ah, but can really I give you just one advice? Um, one piece one. of advice from Slavoj to leave my school. own book, I have to make propaganda, but I don't think it's so good, Incontinence of the Void, read a book, it's selling better than mine, Alenka Zupanchis, What is Sex? It's an incredibly condensed 100 pages resume of her thinking of sexual difference and so on and so on. This is the pro prospect project that me and my gang are, are engaged in. Thank you, Slavoj. Thanks, everyone. And I'm grateful to you for your patience with my discussion. Thank you.